0: There in podcast land, and welcome to this week's segment of the Ernerberry Market Digest. This week, we have a very, very special guest who we uh, love here at Ernerberry, Michael Ergang. He is president of global risk management. He's got a long standing career, uh, really just being a pioneer in his space. And I am so happy that you could make it here today, Michael. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Laura, and thank you for the uh, gushing introduction.
0: Well, that's what I do here, right? This is a podcast. We love the people we talk to. So um, first of all, I doubt it, but maybe not everybody knows who you are, what you do. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and about your career?
1: First of all, I am a native Chicagoan. I've lived in the, the city all my life, but I actually started my career in finance uh, with six years in public accounting and banking before I joined McDonald's Corporation in 1993 as a a treasury analyst. And initially my role with McDonald's was very financial related, managing interest rate risk, borrowing money, hedging foreign currencies. But I got more exposure to the to the procurement leg of the business and that got me asking questions about how we managed commodity risk and the narrative at the time was it was uh, commodity, managing commodity risk was a difficult thing to do and that there were a lot of barriers in place but i i was very curious about the fact that the company had very dif- disciplined well-defined programs for financial risks such as interest rates and currencies but not so much for commodities so, with the support of the management team at McDonald's, I put together a piloted program in the late 1990s, uh, which grew significantly over the years. And by the time I left in McDonald's in 2013, it was a it was a major strategic initiative for the procurement arm of the business in managing the company's cost structure. Last five years, I've been a partner at a company called global risk management based out of minneapolis we are a boutique consulting firm where we customize risk management strategies for our customers which could range from what we call farm to fork Uh, my partner brian harris is an expert in the area of edible oils and sweeteners and grains and my personal expertise is in beef and pork and poultry and uh between the two of us and the rest of the team we have a we have significant value that we bring to our clients with respect to commodity expertise.
0: So it sounds to me like you're kind of new to the industry. Maybe you haven't really talked too much about commodities before am i am I hearing you correctly? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well,
0: your career is so impressive i'm I'm so glad that we have you here I, I'd like to understand you know. There are a lot of food businesses out there that are kind of just starting to look into risk management, right? So 2020 threw them for a huge loop and things just have to change. They have to clear the deck and they have to make decisions that are going to help them uh, try to kind of save themselves from a catastrophe like this going forward. Um, So why is it so important for a company who hasn't done any kind of risk management internally before to start doing that
1: now? Well, I think you know as we head into a post-COVID environment, I think companies are looking more closely at their cost structures overall, and um, whether you know certainly the COVID-related costs, those are that are, those that are recurring, those that are non-recurring. Uh, but to be fair to some of these companies, the, uh, many food companies have a significant uh, number of competing priorities. Uh, pretty much every company that I've ever worked with, for example, has food safety as a number one priority. That's a non-negotiable. Okay. Then you talk about food quality. Um, then you talk about assured supply. So sometimes on, on my best day, I'm the fourth largest priority that a company might be uh, might be looking at. But the uh, the opportunity there is that, or our value proposition, is that largely commodity risk is something that you can do something about. And if you could do a, a good job in managing your commodity risk, you can then focus on those other three avenues. the The other point is that I think companies are waking up t- to the fact that the modest amount of resources that's required to have a good hedging program is, uh, is inconsequential in some cases relative to the price certainty in your cost structure and your ability to run your business and market your, your, your products differently is knowing that you have certainty value in your cost structure.
0: You know, it's interesting you say that because I, I say something very similar to our clients, right? The fact is, is if you can save time, by doing things differently, right? If you can save money by doing things differently, then that time and that money gets immediately put back into those other hugely important non-negotiables, as you said, I think that's a great point. Um, So obviously I wanna talk about beef, right? So would you say that the beef category is the most important one to put uh, this type of work into? And if so, why, if not, why not?
1: You know, it's, the beef is definitely the most important uh, category to, for many companies to look at. Uh, the interesting reason is, is why. And when you look at commodity volatility, uh, there's very few commodities that have the price volatility that, that beef shows. And so, and add to that the fact that for many companies that sell beef, uh, beef is their largest exposure. Um, but even if it weren't, let's say we were talking about you know a, a soup manufacturer, for example, where they they might have trace amounts of beef. Even if beef isn't your largest exposure, it could very easily be the largest contributor to your food cost volatility because it it not only is it volatile in and of itself, it doesn't necessarily correlate well to other commodities you might have exposure to. So, you know while while people talk about, the difficulty in hedging beef. Um, what I will tell you is the inherent in that is the opportunity, if you can do it well. And uh, so that's uh, that's really, I think the the discussion that we're increasingly having is away from how challenging it is to have beef to asking the question: what oper- what competitive advantage, for example, what might we be able to earn if we could hedge beef better than others in our category?
0: Absolutely. I love that competitive advantage. I love that word. I love the term. Love it. Um, and it's so important to understand how you can get a leg up, right? If you could just take a breath and get ahead. You know, it's, it's such a huge advantage just all around to your whole entire strategy. And speaking of strategy, when we're talking about hedging, when we're talking about risk management, in, in your experience and in your opinion, um, which of the segments would be the most benefited? By implementing this type of strategy, so would it be, you know, generally food service? Would it be retail? Would it be QSRs? Would it be wholesalers? Would it be traders? Tell me, where's the biggest upside in your mind where it's, you know, leveraged not necessarily as much as it could be?
1: Yeah, you know, I think I, yeah, this is going to sound like a non-answer, but I think anyone that touches food could certainly benefit. Um, but if you ask me, who could benefit most? Uh, I think it's uh, a lot of the the companies that have uh, v- value as part of their proposition. So maybe maybe thinner margins, uh, companies that often uh, tie m- merchandiser their products to specific specific price points, whether it's two for four dollars, three for five dollars. Um, those and and more broadly, those companies in which commodity price volatility could cause a broader distraction in the operations of their business in, in the oper- and at the ownership level as well.
0: So that definitely uh, obviously pushes me toward the concept of QSRs, right? When you talk about two for four, four for four, value meal, right? You get all of these things, your nuggets and your burger and your fries and your drink for the low price of X dollars. That's a value that a lot of people rely on. It has to be pretty consistent. The consumer doesn't want to see those prices uh, jump you know, they want to be able to go and and rely on getting a meal that they're comfortable with at the price that they're comfortable with as well. But when we talk about QSRs, there are a lot of different types of setups. And one of the most interesting ones when we talk about this is the franchise setup. So when you're talking to somebody who is um, in charge of a franchise, you have a lot of people's livelihoods uh, kind of depending on your decisions. So, how could risk management and hedging really impact that type of situation? And does that trickle down to the franchisees?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and one that you know, there's actually three categories of answers that that come to mind. There's the there's the financial, there's the operational, and there and then there's even the emotional aspect of the benefit of. Uh, of risk management in a franchise organization. I mean, franchise organizations in general perform well when there's a tremendous amount of of alignment between the franchisor and the franchisee. In many cases, the the franchisees don't enjoy the same uh, capital structure that the franchisor does. They can't issue bonds. They don't have large credit facilities. So the franchisees don't always have the wherewithal to withstand massive increases in, in commodity prices. Uh, put yourself in the, in the shoes of, a, of a, a franchisee who's seeking to borrow money at a bank, okay? So she'll go in, sit down with a banker, and the, and the banker will ask, okay, I'm interested in getting this loan repaid. How is, uh, follow, how is an increase in commodity prices going to impact my ability to repay that loan? Well, there's a couple of answers that that franchisees could give. And if one of them is that the franchisor has a sophisticated, cohesive, well-thought-out, tried-and-tested commodity risk management program, that might put the franchisee in a position to earn better terms and conditions for the, for the loan that they are seeking, uh, there's uh, from a from an operational perspective, uh, I think it's even more clear. And quite frankly, that was one of my more early uh, motivations for setting up uh, a program where you know we talked a little bit about the alignment. So the 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 menu management folks at a franchisor could come up with a a really great uh, limited LTO, a great sandwich, the the Laura sandwich, for example, just to make up a name. But if they actually
0: the, heard that was the best sandwich. <laughs> I actually heard that sandwich is brilliant. It's wonderful. Everybody's ordering. That's just what I heard. I mean, I don't want to spread any rumors, but I heard. I heard.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so, if you the the issue that sometimes the the franchisees face is if the components of the uh, of the of the sandwich uh, increase, the that, there goes the margin. There goes the margin that they were uh, that they were. Promised to by the the franchisor, commodity risk management takes a source of confrontation off the table. So, you, to the extent where if you tell a, a, if you were to tell a group of franchisees that you had a great idea for a sandwich, and in that the price the margin was uh, was was fairly protected, there's going to be a lot more excitement to promote that. And um, the other thing I would tell you is that the. If, I've asked franchisees in the past why they like commodity risk management. And they would look at me like, you know, like I was crazy. How would you even ask a question? You know, they would say, you know what, I, every day I have to wake up and I pray that a dozen 16-year-old kids bother to get off a TikTok and show up to my restaurants. And you're so I have a lot of predictability in the normal operations of a restaurant. And you're providing me some predictability. That's a that's a good thing. allows me to allows me to focus on my business. So, um, so there's a so it's a it's a great question. But the answer isn't 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 necessarily just mathematical. It really ties the benefits of risk management largely tie into the operations of the of the business and being able to run your business better and ultimately serve your customers better. That
0: makes a lot of sense. And I guess I want to understand so. I was well, we obviously kidding when I said you're new to hedging, right? We know you're not. And um, so since you've been doing this for several years, what I'd like to know um, is how have the resources and the tools that are available for this kind of strategy, how have they evolved over time for you?
1: Well, the, they've, actually, they've actually changed quite a bit. And uh, one thing I will tell you is that when I first went through the commodity risk management uh, process process, uh, we created a, uh, a correlation matrix because we wanted to look at the top 20 commodities we have exposure and and sort of tease out any natural hedges that we had within our quote-unquote portfolio of commodity risk. So we built a correlation matrix within Excel. We, we took out some textbooks on applied mathematics to apply uh, matrix algebra so that we could accurately model the covariance within this portfolio. Okay. That, now that was in 1997. A couple years ago, I was very bemused to find that there's a a free Excel add-in that will do all that right away. So um, now back then, it took us probably the better part of a week to to create this tool. But we thought it was important uh, to understanding what our risk is in aggregate. And uh, so the technology has certainly made it a lot easier, so that you could you could focus more. On uh, process and strategy, and then maybe the analytics piece is uh, is, is a little uh, is a little more streamlined and straightforward. Um, the other way to answer that question in terms of resources and people resources, and that goes in fits and spurts. You know, I could tell you right now, I get a lot more calls from clients and, and potential clients looking. Uh, to hire people that have risk management experience than I do from people that already have the experience that are looking to make a a career change. So the expertise is certainly uh, tilted in favor of the people that have the experience and resource. Um, And then ultimately, when you talk about tools, uh, the liquidity in hedging tools, uh, while it has been uneven over the years, with some tools become available and then not available, uh, there's generally been a a bit of an uptick, uh, a a recent uptick in the availability of hedging tools and resources. For those that have hedged other commodities than beef, it, it's very different because you know my partner Brian, for example, hedges corn and soybean oil, where there's very liquid and deep futures markets. Where hedging beef is, you, you have to be a lot more, you have to be a lot more creative uh, to uh, to manage your risk in uh, in, in in beef and some of the uh, animal protein categories.
0: So let's talk about. Um the population of companies that are hedging now, right? So you said that, you know, the, the talent is certainly out there. The resources have evolved. You know, you've been in this game for a while and have absolutely innovated throughout the course of your career. But when we talk about who really is, which Earn or customers range from everything, from the biggest financial institutions down to somebody who owns a few restaurants or owns a fishing boat, right? So it could be any of those folks um, in our eyes that could benefit from additional intelligence. But when it comes to your expertise, where is most of it found at this point? And are you seeing a lot of growth in one or two in particular?
1: Yeah, You know, it's, it's an interesting question, Laura, and it's, it's increasingly broad. It seems to me that there's a, a natural progression where at one time, if you could manage your commodity risk, that was a, a good thing. Then it. Then, if you move along the evolution, for lack of a better term, it became an expectation. Now, fast forward to 2021. In some cases, it's a bad thing if you can't, particularly if you're in an industry where your your competitors can do it. So, kind of like you, I've uh, you know I've I've gotten calls from uh, uh, manufacturers of me- medical devices that are looking at precious metals. I gave a I gave a presentation at a CFO roundtable here in Chicago. In um, a in a fruit distributor came up and uh, was worried about the price of frozen blueberries because they're very volatile. And you know, I, essentially, I told them to buy a bigger freezer. And I was only I was only half kidding. Um, so it's what what's happening is those companies that have done it well. Uh, the, the board members of those companies are going to other companies and raising the question and then holding people accountable for, for results. So while it's maybe true, 25 years ago, you might have been able to say, well, we can't hedge beef, it's too hard. Uh, the There's much more pushback and there's much more, um, and, and there's uh, there's actually a, a larger opportunity in being able to, to do that, particularly if your competitors can do things and they're with their business that you are unable to do because for lack of a commodity risk management program.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I happen to live in the blueberry capital of the country here in New Jersey. People think we're just one big city, but we're not. There's lots of blueberries. So, uh, you know, if you ever want some, send them out to you. Um, But you're right. You're right. I hear it too, right? I hear risk management and conversations more now than I ever, ever have get more questions about it, more comments about it, more requests for topics like this than I ever have before. Um, and I'm wondering, is there something that's really kind of happened that spurred it? aside from the pandemic, right? Because you're saying that this trend has been increasing over the last several years, not just during uh, the global situation that we're in at the moment, but what happened or was it keeping up with the Joneses or what is this popularity? Is it the availability of data? What what is is spurring all of this change in innovation uh, that everybody's jumping on your bandwagon you
1: know it's a it's a couple things um first is maybe a little more near term anytime that there's a a massive spike in commodity prices uh, that's a wake-up call to people who weren't focused on protecting themselves and it's it's not uncommon that we that we meet clients because of a uh, uh, unfavorable financial consequences obviously our preference would be the proactive type to avoid that but anytime you get into what's what's called a commodity super cycle your unhedged exposures tend to uh, float to the top of a, think of a th- think of a bottle of soda the bubble eventually makes its way up and the analogy is that a, a commodity super cycle uh, exposes uh, exposes vulnerability to commodity prices in your cost structure that maybe you were able to uh, work, manage through through other tool through other practices previously. You know, and then the other thing, and, and, and I'd be interested in your thought on this as well. Is one of the initial ret- reticence that people have is the idea of being long and wrong, and that so, and and for those on the podcast, it's, you lock into a price of let's say B fifties at. At eighty dollars, a hundred weight, and the market falls to forty dollars. People, people are traditionally have been afraid of being long and wrong, and I think what we're seeing more of is people getting around that by by focusing their activity on very specific goals that have been aligned around. Okay, now if your goal is to beat the market, then yeah, maybe long and wrong is a is an issue. But, but our philosophy, you know, at, at global risk management is more along the lines of margin management. And uh, those are the companies that, yeah, you're going to be long and wrong, um, but, but your goal was to really reduce the predictability. Uh, I'm sorry, to increase the predictability. And one of the, one of the ways we get people across that significant barrier is we'll typically ask, okay, um, did you spend money on life insurance last year? And most people will say yes. And they will say, well, was it a waste of money because you didn't die? And they'll say, no, it wasn't a waste of money because I didn't die. Well, explain to me why that wasn't a waste of money. And when that person answers that question, they're typically also uh, simultaneously answering the long and wrong question.
0: You're right. And, and you're right. I hear that, too. Right. But there's the other side of it. Right. There's the other side of it where. You know some companies it would it would make all the difference to be able to buy something at a lower price and kind of stock up on it right so some people have never never done anything besides a contract right that's all they do they lock in for the year that's the price seems good to me that's what I'm going to go with and at least they know what the budget is what the spend is on that category but when you run into years full of anomalies Sometimes that's great because you're locked in and then all of a sudden the price shot up. And sometimes you're just kicking yourself because you're like, man, oh, my God, the oversupply. They brought on two new lines. There's all this chicken out there. But I think it just depends on on the individual companies, you know, risk tolerance and how agile they are in terms of being able to pivot. If the market does go down, do you have the ability to buy it up and throw it in the freezer? Can you pivot? with the opportunity as it approaches. If that's not the structure of your company, then I understand why long and wrong could still be a favorable outcome for those companies in those positions.
1: You know, Laura, I had a conversation a few years back with the chief risk officer of one of the largest agribusiness firms in the world. And he looked at me thoughtfully and says, you know, Mike, it all boils down to do you want to eat better or do you want to sleep better? And while, and that, that got me to thinking because it kind of goes to the crux of the issue that we're talking about. But the reality is, even though he presented this as a dichotomy, it's really a balance of the two. And in agreeing with you know, the people in an organization, what is the correct balance between those two priorities of eating better and, and sleeping better? Now, now to your point, there's some there, there's some companies that that shouldn't hedge. So if a if a if a gas station operator called me up, looking to hedge gas, I'd say you know what don't don't hedge gas. If the price of gas goes up, take one of those long poles, change the price. Okay, your customers will understand, and they have to fill up their their tanks anyway. So, so part of the decision making is how you price your is your industry and how you price your product to your customers.
0: Absolutely. And and so let's say I mean I think we can agree based on the conversation hedging is here to stay. I think we know that. So you've already mentioned that that tools have really really evolved over the years. As of today, what are some of the best tools and resources that are out there? for somebody who wants to start dabbling, kind of sticking their toe in the pond?
1: Okay, well, there's two types of hedges that are commonly used uh, to hedge beef, uh, the physical hedges, and there are financial hedges. Uh, And I'll go into a little bit of detail on each and uh, and discuss the pros and cons of each. Uh, The physical hedges are the most common, uh, and they're fairly straightforward, particularly for companies that are... Uh, getting their feet wet in uh, in risk management, and uh, a, a physical hedge is typically a fixed price agreement between a buyer and a supplier to lock in the price of a of a beef product for a specific volume at a, over a specific period of time. They're fairly easy to negotiate. Uh, they're simple to implement, and uh, in addition. To getting a fixed price, you also have a commitment from a supplier that if product starts to become tight in, a, in terms of availability, uh, you have a you have a commitment that that you're actually going to get delivery of that product. Um, probably the major cons of a fixed price agreement is that there isn't a lot of tr- price transparency over the over the price that you're locking into. Uh, and that's particularly important if you single source that commodity and you don't have a, a second quote, if you will, that you could uh, compare with your uh, with your that you can compare suppliers with. The second category of hedges are the physical hedges, and they normally f- come in the form of what's called over-the-counter swaps. And instead of exchanging money for product. In a financial hedge, it's just an exchange of fixed versus floating cash flows so that at the end of the day, you've locked in financially to a fixed price of the item that you're seeking to hedge. Uh, The benefits of financial hedges is they're easy to customize um, their banks are typically very flexible on term in, in in the timing in which they'll be able to enter into them. Uh, you could compete multiple financial counterparties at the same time uh, to try to get the best price. Um, some of the cons, the most notable con of the financial hedges, quite frankly, is their availability. Their banks uh, have been over time. Banks have kind of gotten in and out of the making markets in. Uh, in financial hedges for for beef products, and uh, so their availability isn't always uh, isn't always certain. Of late, there seems to be a little more of an uptick in the interest of banks in offering hedges, which is uh, which overall is very good. Um, the question I get the most is: so, which one do you use? Should you use a physical hedge or the financial hedge? And the answer is particularly if you're if you've made a commitment to to managing your beef risk is you have to you have to be involved in both of them and um, because there there's certain times of the year uh, and there's certain economic environments where uh, one might be uh, more cost effective than another or one might be more available than another so it's important to have both physical and financial hedges.
0: So I've had some customers say to me. You know, we're looking at hedging, but it seems like it's going to be too expensive for us to really implement. What would you say? I know what I would say, but what would you say to somebody who says that to you?
1: Well, I, I think the first question I would come back with is: uh, is expensive compared to what?
0: <laughs> exactly. That's pretty much exactly what I would say too.
1: You know what? I get that. I get that comment. Uh, I get that comment a lot, and um, I think that. The, the one way, the, the best approach, I think, is to start by asking the, the question why. So you, you want a forward price on a certain beef product. Uh, put, your, put yourself in the eyes of the packer making that offer. So it, you let's, and again, let's go back to the, the fat trim, the beef 50s. So you have a limited amount that you could forward sell. You're worried about the price running up, and you're not fully enjoying that. So, and this is conjecture here, but, it, but pure economics would dictate that if I have product, if I'm looking at, if I'm a packer and I'm looking at my production schedule and I know that I have some product that I have to forward sell, I'm going to price that to my most risk adverse customer because they're the ones that are going to likely pay the most. It, it, it just seems like pure economics. There's not a one company, a one solution fits all to uh, to negotiate and bring down prices. It varies company by company. It's it's certainly not cook, cookie cutter. But what I can tell you is that in in any general negotiation, the more the more alternatives that you create for yourself, the more leverage you're ultimately going to have. And so, the the, so the exact solution will. We will customize company by company, but it's all really based on developing uh, viable hedging alternatives for yourself so that you have – so you do have leverage.
0: So that makes a lot of sense. And, and of course, I'm going to have a question that I want to end on that I think is really important because the people who listen to this podcast, a lot of them are our customers, but not all of them are. And so I want to get a question out there that can kind of maybe – stir a little thought, and kind of leave them with um, something to chew on. So if I were a buyer at a company that right now we have a basic procurement strategy, right? we got a team of buyers. Maybe we have some category managers, right? And then we got the uh, director of procurement, right? If I see the benefit in hedging, but maybe not everybody going up the chain really does because things are done a certain way. Can I start small? Like is there something that I can do to just kind of research it, to understand it? Maybe are there small actions that I can take in my role in this in this buying strategy um, to start hedging? Just just a little tiny thing that I can do, a change I can make. like if you were on a diet and you stopped drinking soda? <laughs>
1: there's, there's a couple things actually. Um, the, the first one uh, is gonna uh, the first one would be to subscribe to Ernerberry. Because that would get you. It's a very efficient, cost-effective way of getting a tremendous amount of trice, price transparency and insights into the market. Okay. Second thing I would do is very simple. Is talk. What are your goals? What are you What are you trying to accomplish? And get some alignment around this trade-off between saving money and reducing risk before you enter into that first hedge. ask take a step back and say, what are, we, what are we trying to accomplish here in a line around that? Um, the final thing that I would tell you, Laura, is that for many people, the hedging decision is, is kind of a daunting task because it could significantly impact your firm's profitability for an extended period of time. So what I typically encourage people to do is instead of starting out making one big decision, Break it down to a series of smaller decisions. Okay, don't, don't hedge a year. Hedge hedge a month. Hedge two months, and then see what happens. You know, do a a, a post uh, an autopsy analysis on what the results. What did you think was going to happen? What what did you want to happen? And then, as you get more comfortable, and, and, and it's not just in procurement. Is finance, marketing, management? As everybody gets more comfortable with these smaller decisions, grow into larger decisions
0: absolutely love that you called it autopsy analysis just just. <laughs> hopefully nobody's dead but the beef but but I love that we usually call it Monday morning Monday morning quarterbacking um, in sales I love that and I also think uh, some of the things that you say are super interesting right so you came from finance actually maybe you don't know this about me but I did, too, on a much lower level than you were. But one of the things when you were talking with any client about potentially investing, right, is first first things first, assess the risk tolerance. Assess the goals. Get an understanding of where do I see myself? Is this a short-term investment? Is it a long-term investment? What do I want to achieve? Do I want to pass my wealth down to my kids? Or am I hoping to live off of this money for the rest of my life, right? And before somebody actually sits back and really assesses, their goals, and also make sure they're in alignment with the company's goals, there's not really a good place to start until you've done that. And once you've done that, these are some great things that you're mentioning. Um, Breaking it off into smaller portions, I see that a lot, right? I see now people buying on quarterly contracts, right? Whereas before, maybe they didn't, right? Just kind of, I've said this three times, I think, but just dipping their toe in the pond. And um, I think they're liking the temperature of the water because I see it a lot more than I ever did.
1: You know, Laura, you raised a really interesting point on second guessing, which is an occupational hazard if you're in the risk management business. One of the things I would tell you, particularly in a, a franchised organization, is to be as inclusive as as practicality allows in in the process. People people tend not to de- second guess a decision if they were given the opportunity, even if only by committee or representation, to participate in the process. If you set up a program that's maybe in a, it's more siloed, you're, you're subjecting yourself to all kinds of second guessing. And I think inclusiveness, you know, in a way that's responsible and, and constructive, will go a long way in uh, aligning around the decisions and gaining support and the, and the outcomes.
0: Absolutely. An advisory board, right? Just, just like they're saying now with hiring practices, you should have a hiring committee. So I love that. I actually love everything we talked about. This is so unique um, from the things that we've discussed with our other guests. I can't thank you enough for taking the time uh, to come on the show. This has been for, for me, very eye opening, And I know for the listeners, it will be too.
1: Laura, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And I really enjoyed having the discussion with you.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to this week's segment of the Weekly Market Digest with Michael Ergang, President of Global Risk Management. Don't forget to connect with both of us on LinkedIn to stay up to date on everything center of the plate.